Pamajana Trimanandasya, Janajana Salakaya, Chakshon Militanyena, Tasmashi Guru Enamaha. Vajakaptu Vishya, Kripasindabi Vajja, Petit Nam Pamanebio, Vaishnavidju Namonamaha. So we'll discuss a little bit more of the causeless nature of bhakti this evening. Understanding that basically when we look at the practice of devotional service, it basically sets everything that we're accustomed to from material existence on its ear. What I mean by that is everything here is, is cause and effect. Everything we do requires some input on our part, on the part of the living entity, and based on that input, there is some effect, some causal reaction. But such causal reaction is not there in the field of bhakti. There is no material cause. It is causeless. It is coming just like the Lord himself. And in fact, Bhakti herself is, as far as bestowing mercy upon the living entity, independent of Krishna. One would say, well, can there be any independence from Krishna? Isn't everything part of him or or a manifestation of his various energies? And of course that holds true. Everything is originally coming from the Supreme and part of the Supreme. But when we talk about the Supreme Personality of Godhead and his interaction with his various potencies, his energies, part of the nature of those potencies is those potencies in and of themselves are also benedicted with their own independent nature. So, it's a, it's a complex subject matter. It's not going to be understood with, with mundane logic, but the great Acharyas, they have tried to provide us with a logical approach uh, uh, and a, a, series, a series of logical explanations that are somewhat akin to what we're accustomed to in material nature, how we're accustomed to seeing things, how we're accustomed to arriving at a conclusion, how we're accustomed to accepting certain things as evidentiary uh, in nature. Now, of course, in material nature, the primary uh, torchbearer of evidence for us is our senses. Our senses are giving us input, and based on that input, we're arriving at conclusions. We're accepting those conclusions. At a certain point, uh, sensory input has to be set aside in order to attain a higher uh, level of uh, understanding. So we uh, sometimes set aside... Uh, the evidence that the senses give and the interaction that we have with the senses and we we use, apply our intellect to things that are beyond our sensual perception in order to fully comprehend them or try to grasp uh, what they are. It's impossible for, our, for us to have sensual knowledge of, uh, of how the universe works. We can only observe so much. Our senses really hit a, a barrier there uh, when it takes to, well, how does this, how do, how do we fit into the, the universal equation? Uh, our senses can only, well, we see there's, there's, there's a source of, of light and heat coming to us. It's a planet that's bigger on the, bigger than the planet we are, but we don't exactly know what is the source of that heat, what is the source of that light. We can only surmise that there must be great atomic reactions having on happening on that planet in order for it to 
generate enough power that based on our science of mathematics and applying that science to the best of our abilities, we can understand that planet is is a long, long way away. It's not next door. Uh, it's It's pretty far and still still it's heating and lighting us and uh and then then we have the moon which appears to be closer and it's nourishing us uh and how does that work how does the 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 moon uh, provide nourishment to the vegetables so we can only with our senses go so far and then there is a point where we have to apply our intellect as best we can to acquiring information, reliable, knowledgeable information. Now, of course, we've learned from the beginning of Madhurya Kadamani that when we look to the science of spirit, to the science of the soul, to the nature of, of spiritual matters, the great sages and saints have have relied on primarily and put in the topmost position that evidence which is coming from from scripture from shastra and the primary shastra is shruti shruti is is believed to be actually a purusheya not touched in any way by material nature it's it's the uh, it's coming directly from the lord so it's descending into the material world from a transcendental realm. Try to wrap your intellect around that. How does that work? Can we rely on what the sages are saying? How much faith do we put in this primary pramana or evidence which all the great sages have, who have come before have relied? Well, we can put as much evidence, we can put as much faith in that as we put in those personalities how much faith do we have in those personalities sometimes the faith can carry a lot we look at the, look at the faith of of simply what we would consider from a from a strict strictly intellectual viewpoint the faith that's been placed in in the body of of the teachings of one saint, Lord Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years, it's carried a huge portion of humanity. And we consider his teachings very elementary. But look at what has happened and transpired throughout humanity that we can see through history. We can't see it all, but there's some history, historical information provided to us of his life, his teachings, his followers, and it's been compiled. They have their book of Christianity, the Bible, and they place faith in that scripture based on that saint, and they live their lives accordingly. Where does that faith come from? How do we place our, you know, what how do we how do we place our faith there in this shruti shmriti shruti coming from the lips of the lord the, the primary upanishads and uh and uh the shmriti those those teachings based on those basically as i said unpacking what the lord has said and and making it digestible because if it's not unpacked if it's all tightly bailed up, you know, just like a cow. You put a bale of hay there and it's all tied up. It's a lot easier for the cow if you fluff up the hay a little bit. It's easier to digest. It's easier to get at, easier to consume. So similarly, when you look at knowledge, when you look at scriptural knowledge, we say that, uh, well, atato brahma jignasa, Tato Brahma Jignasa. Now, now we can inquire. Well, what does that mean? How do we how do we look at something like that? Uh, uh, a simple simple saying, a simple a simple thing coming from uh, Shruti. It needs to be explained. 
It needs to be explained, and that's what the sages have done. They've entered into an understanding. How much faith can we put in their understanding? How much faith do we put in in the pramana of, of, of Scripture? Well, we put as much faith as we have faith in those that have, have divulged it to us. Without that connection, how much faith is going to be there? Even if you look at Christianity, the faith is there based on what? The introduction to the teaching and who's presenting it. You cannot, you cannot separate the teachings from the teacher. As much as modern science would like to do that and take credit from, away from the teacher and say, well, it's all there. Anybody can approach this, this subject matter you don't need a teacher. Anybody can do. But we don't see that practically, do we? We don't see that somebody is really going to the Bible unless they've heard of the Bible from, from somebody. Somebody's introduced them. And they've taken and they've gone forward. Similarly, someone has introduced us to this philosophy of Krishna consciousness, to this, this path of devotional service. And after hearing, applying our intellect, understanding a few things really sounded, they, they run true, we said, well, let me, let, me, let me inquire further. This is the nature of, of spiritual pursuit, is it starts with shraddha, with some faith. Adao, shraddha, tata sadhu. Where do we get the faith? We get it from a sadhu. And I don't, it doesn't, if you look at any, any pursuit above and beyond what the senses can provide for us, we take shelter of a sadhu. Or sometimes we would call a rishi. A teacher, somebody that knows the subject. Somebody that actually can explain to us based on realization. His realization may be entirely based on a material science. He's studied, he's seen, he's learned himself from others. And he can say, this is how fusion works. This is how the energy of the sun is, is, comes. It's, it's this big, huge, uh, you know, nuclear, continual nuclear uh, combustion engine up there, glowing in the, like a star in the, in the sky. So we're taking this knowledge from, from the teachers, the, the rishis, the sadhus, and uh, when, where the senses leave off, we can go further. This is Praman. Now, based on the scriptures, the devotional scriptures, the scriptures of Bhakti that have come down through time, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, coming in our line, which is the line of Sri Chaitanya, which is how Vishwanath opened up his book, first by, by pointing out what I'm presenting here. What I'm presenting here is coming forth from the movement of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. His, Hari, his Sankirtan movement is nourishing love of God, bhakti. We're taking this nourishment and we're primarily learning about this nourishment that he's giving to the ninefold process of bhakti, which has been revealed in the scriptures prior to his advent. But he added something special. Golokar Premadan. He's introducing a, an approach to bhakti that has as it, its objective the very highest, the very highest, as we understand it and can understand it from him, level of unadulterated love for the Supreme Lord. 
and that highest level of love is that is what is experienced in the relationships with the Lord in his topmost spiritual realm, Goloka Vrindavan. That is what Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is presenting to human society. And this has been the scribe, so to speak, who has heard from Sri Chaitanya and presented the system of practice which we, as his followers, take up to attain Vraj Bhakti, that Bhakti, specific Bhakti, is Srila Rupa Goswami. So, the author has praised the process, pointed out the distinctiveness of it as being Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's most magnanimous. Namo Mahabharanaya Krishna Prema Pradayate. This manifestation of the Supreme Lord is giving the most, the highest conception. The most mercy is being bestowed by him in that he's making this highest realm of transcendental awareness and a practice by which we can not only become aware of it, because the awareness in and of itself is, 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 is so relishable, but what to speak of entering into it as a participant. We're happy, as uh, Guru Maharaj says, we're happy to sit on the bench. You know, we don't need to be called in, but still, we're in good company just carrying the water. <laughs> Rupa Goswami has, has written this down, and based on what, on his instructions, he is our Abhideya guru, our practice. Based on his instructions, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur is, again, fluffing it out a little bit so we can enter into a deeper understanding. So after praising Shaitanya, praising Rupa Goswami, and giving us a concise understanding of what he is presenting and its validity according to the evidence of Shastra. He's saying, what I'm going to be presenting to you has been given by Rupa Goswami and it is fully verifiable by all the scriptures that are accepted by the most prominent sages of devotion. So our system is, is, is a system of devotion and when we come to that evidence, that understanding of the Veda coming from the Supreme Lord, what is our primary source of that evidence? Srimad Bhagavatam. It is the cream. It is the essence. It is, it is that pramana which brings all the words of the Vedas to life. It is that literary incarnation of Krishna himself. Having made this opening, this introduction in his book, now, now we come to a very important point. What exactly is bhakti? What is it? What are we talking about here? And what are its distinguishing characteristics? So the first thing that Vishwanath wants to point out is Bhakti is independent like the Lord. It is a manifestation of the Lord's energy, but it is fully independent. So much so that you would say it in and of itself is independent of Krishna. Although it's an integral part of Krishna. So he's delegated this bhakti to who? Well, to his topmost lover. So it is truly her domain. Although that's not directly mentioned here, it, it is implied. We'll go over these verses again and go a little deeper. So the first thing, the self-manifesting, and I've read these before, I'm just going to read them again. And, and again, this is so important for us to understand the fact that bhakti is independent, She's self-manifesting. She's like the Lord. And 
Krishna, it's the nature of love, this bhakti, the nature of love, is that it has its own course. It runs its own course. In order to to set aside any misconceptions and to basically also in doing that set aside any misconceptions we may have about the practice. It's accomplishing two things, Vishwanath here in this beginning of his book. He's accomplishing two things. He's He's distinguishing the independent nature of bhakti and he's, and he's making us aware as practitioners that the approach to pure unalloyed devotional service, to pure bhakti, the approach is distinct from anything that we're accustomed to in material existence. It's not, it doesn't come, the result of bhakti, of prema, of pure love of God, does not come as a result. It comes as a blessing, as a benediction. It's given freely, but it cannot be taken. It's not something that we can reach out and grab, but it's something that will be given to us or is given to us causelessly. It really turns our whole material approach on its ear because all we're doing in the practice of sadhana bhakti is we are hopefully, by taking good guidance under good instruction from sadhus and the guru, people that know the science, we are preparing ourselves, the field of our heart, as fully, in such a way that it opens up and can accept the gift of bhakti. So it's not like we're struggling for anything in the practice of sadhana except that opening up that remover of what removal of whatever barriers we are putting in the way of accepting bhakti, of accepting the mercy coming from bhakti. So it's 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 just it's entirely different from what we're used to. It's entirely different. And in the beginning stages, the kanista stage of devotional practice. Our misconceptions abound. We think, well, I can, I'm going to advance. I can, I can chant more rounds, and that'll make me advance. Or I can, I can be more austere. I can, I, through my endeavors, I can give in charity. I can perform so many things, and this will open my heart to bhakti. And to some extent they can be beneficial if performed in the proper consciousness. So there's a proper consciousness and there's an improper consciousness. And the proper and improper consciousness is based on what? Our, our objective. If our objective is properly situated, then those things seen and understood and applied in the light of the ninefold processes of bhakti can be nourished by those activities. But if the objective is something else, if, we, if our objective is anything except causeless devotional service, then we are trying to use bhakti to nourish another objective. What if you want liberation? What is that? What if, what if that is your objective? You just want out. You just want to end the miseries of material existence. And if loving Krishna can help you end the miseries of material existence, then I'll love Krishna. But really, 
My objective is not love of Krishna. My objective is to end material misery. My objective is liberation. My objective is uh, elevation to the heavenly planets. My objective is yogic cities. My objective is uh, anything except pure bhakti. Bhakti can help. Bhakti's willing to help, but that's that's an improper application that pulls our practice back to a mundane give-and-take arrangement. You understand what I'm saying? I'm applying myself for an objective. Whereas the pure devotee applies himself just, just to have bhakti. Nadanam, Najanam, Nasundarim. After, after Sri Chaitanya da, Mahaprabhu in Shiksastika speaks of, of the platform of utter and total humility, that stage of utter and total humility means I now understand what is bhakti and how there is there can be a possibility of myself taking advantage of it. I have to become lower in the straw industry, devoid of all sense of false prestige. This is the only thing that really works. All these other ideas I may have are not really going to nourish pure bhakti. Pure bhakti is going to be nourished when I become completely free of any prestige, false prestige, that stands in the way of a complete opening of my heart, a complete surrender to, to Krishna and his agents. This is then... And only then can we come to that kind of a consciousness that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu speaks about in the fourth verse of Shiksastika. After that humility, then and only then, does all material interest, including liberation, dissipate naturally. So it's not that there may not still be some lingering Anarthas for mystic cities, for elevation to the heavenly planets, for liberation. These are things that we've contemplated for, for eons of lifetimes. So we cannot expect that the that just coming into the the merciful merciful energy of Bhakti Devi through the devotees that these things will immediately dissipate. So what do we call these things? They're called anarthas. They're unwanted habits. We're habituated to either enjoying on the material realm to the topmost. Well, when we talk the topmost, what do you talk when we talk about the topmost enjoyment? What is it? What's the topmost that you can consider when we look even at all, at any kind of enjoyment. Well, as far as I've heard, and as far as I can understand, the topmost is when everything is under your control. Everything in material nature is under your control. Where do we, where do we see that that's afforded to the living entity? In the topmost, to the topmost degree. The yogis. The yogi with the city powers, the powers of he can do. He can go anywhere he wants. He he can acquire anything he wants. He can control anybody he wants. What is there? Seven, eight mystic opulences. I mean, look at him. He can determine when he leaves his body. He can uh, plant, travel to any planet. There's really nothing left. When it comes to material exploitation, that this, the the yogi cannot acquire immediately. He's so powerful. Of course, acquiring some of those things is a fall down for him because 
all the austerities he, he engaged in to acquire those things can easily fall asunder when he starts to exploit his senses in the enjoyment of those things. But still, uh, it's available to him, that kind of enjoyment. Nadanam Najanam Nasundarin Kavitram Vajagadisha Kamaye. Leaving all those things aside is a difficult thing. And uh, it's 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 not something that we should expect our weak minds under the influence of Kali Yuga to immediately uh, be able to just cast asunder. There has to be, and Krishna speaks about this in the Bhagavad Gita. In the very beginning, second chapter, you know, he speaks of uh, unless and until you've acquired a higher taste, the taste that you're accustomed to will will endure. Uh, what is that verse? Two fifty nine. Visaya vin ni vartante ni hararasya dehina vasavarjam rasopyasya param dristva ni vartate. Though the embodied soul may be restricted from sense enjoyment, you can put on a chastity belt. Though he may be restricted from sense enjoyment, the taste for sense objects remains. But ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. Krishna himself is admitting the fact that Simply by putting on the austerities, by shutting, turning the senses off under spiritual discipline or yogic discipline, by doing that, it's all well and good, but the taste, the desire remains until you taste something better. If all I know is saltine crackers, then I'm perfectly happy with saltine crackers. But if I had some of Badu's bread, then I don't want saltine crackers anymore. Right? I can make saltine crackers also. <laughs> Prove me wrong. But you understand my point. My point is, if it higher taste, of cheese bread, I don't want any saltine crackers anymore. So I'm used to tasting so many things in material life, and I'm used to aspiring to so many things in material life since time immemorial, an endless cycle, coming and going, coming and going, sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes liberated, sometimes completely entangled. But Krishna is saying here, Visaya Vinivartante, Niharashadeina. Param Dristvanivartante. Param tasting something higher, then I can give it up. This is our aspiration is to be given a higher taste. But the higher taste is given. It's not something that we can steal away. So that's what Mishwadath is making very clear here in the beginning. It's causeless. Readjust your consciousness. You, you, you need a, to take on a different perspective when it comes to applying yourself to sadhana bhakti. Because here, Grace and mercy rule supreme, not endeavor, but we endeavor for grace and mercy, and it looks like, and it may even at times feel like, the same kind of endeavor that we've been doing since time immemorial in the beginning. I still, I'm, I'm, I'm applying myself, I'm applying my senses to something. I'm applying my consciousness to hearing the rounds. It seems like work, the same work. But it's not, because what? Well, that is what we're going to touch on here. What is the nature of bhakti? 
how, what is her nature? How does she enter into the mind and the senses of the devotee and make the endeavor transcendental? It feels like work. I'm still getting up. I still got to get up. I got to get dressed just like as I get up and go to work in the morning. I get up and go to Mangalarti. I get up and chant. I, I, I read. I study. I used to study in college. It looks and feels the same for the, for the neophyte sadhika, for ourselves in the beginning. It's feeling like the same kind of work as any other work that we're accustomed to. The same kind of austerities that we're accustomed to. It seems exactly the same as what we're always accustomed to, but how is it becoming, how is it transcendental? How is it different? This is the other side of the coin that we have to see that's being presented by Vishwanath through this beginning revelation of the completely independent nature of bhakti. We have to see it in that light. It, it, it really, we have to change our consciousness. And we have to wrap, a, wrap our consciousness about the causeless nature of bhakti and the fact that our endeavor is not one of acquiring bhakti. Our endeavor is one of trying to become a recipient, a proper recipient, of tilling the field of our heart so that someone with the proper seeds can grow the bhakti lata beach through their through the sound through nourishing what is that bhakti which has been bestowed upon us so how does that bhakti how is it bestowed and who bestows it first point it is fully independent it is not material there's no endeavor we can do for it oh what is it well, it's part of the Lord's spiritual energy. Oh, so he controls it. No. He doesn't control it. It is one of his energies. It's certainly coming from him. But in this instance, he takes a back seat. And a few things are brought out when we look at this back seat that, that Krishna takes. He has no conception. He's full, uh, you know, Satchitananda on steroids. He has no conception of the suffering of the living entities in the same way that someone who has been in that situation knows. So he leaves it to those who have had some experience. That's there. So let's go through the verses. The self-manifesting eternal energy of the Lord Bhakti being non-different from the Lord is not dependent on any other cause. Okay, it's not dependent on any other cause. Then a ver verse is quoted from the Bhagavatam. The verse itself is... Are these are the verses of Madhurikadana? No, these are verses that are quoted that he is bringing out in his verses of Madhurikadana. Not the verses themselves. But they're in there. So first one, first one is the causeless nature. So the first one is Savaipum Samparo Dharmo Yato Bhakti Radoksaje. Ahaitikiya Pratiyatayi Yatma Supersidate. the supreme Dharma of humanity. If we're going to talk about a topmost religion, it is that religion whereby we can prepare our heart for, to receive bhakti. That's in the very beginning of the Bhagavatam. That is, in speaking to all the sages of Namasharanya, that is, that is what has been presented by Sutta Goswami uh, to Sonika and, and all the other sages there. So this is... This is Devotional service to Lord Adokshija, Savaipum Samparo Dharma Yato Bhaktir Adokshija, um, who is beyond the senses of all human beings, 
is the best of all religions because such devotion is causeless and uninterrupted by obstacles. <clears throat> Similarly, the words of the Lord, by chance if one attains faith in hearing my glories, by chance if one attains bhakti, by chance if bhakti manifests, refers to the Lord's independent will. The word Yadritya means independent will. The dictionary also mentions Yadritya as spontaneous or self-will. The Lord is fully independent. Bhakti is fully independent. And they can, they can manifest in both the internal and external senses of the living entity at their will. And for the pure devotee, if we remember Narada Muni, in that section of the Bhagavatam where he explains how he how he attained perfection, he explained of that he explained of the stage of his devotional practice, wherein his love became so developed that when he thought of Krishna and when he engaged in his devotional practice, the Lord appeared to him as if being summonsed. I don't know if you've read that part of the Bhagavatam or studied it, but that's that is that's paraphrasing what what uh, Narda said. Is it, it seemed like when I chanted, he came. You can imagine that he appeared. He appeared in my heart. So that's how powerful the love for the Lord develops. And, and and turns into as we advance where the Lord is reciprocating as if I'm calling him and he's coming. So Narda points this out. This is a very amazing you can imagine that attaining this stage of advancement in your in your practice where it appears that God's coming. Narda's of course very special uh, Special also, if you remember it, we look at that narration where Narda speaks of his elevation to spiritual consciousness. And even though he was not, he was still in what's referred to as the probationary period, like we are. We're, we're like in the probationary period. Like okay, are you real? Are you are you really here for the right reasons? Are you really serious about this? Is this something you really want, or do you want the mystic cities or the liberation or the material enjoyments? Do you want the dancing girls and the nadanam, nadjanam, nasundarim, all the money and all the women and all the followers or liberation? Well. Love for Krishna is so magnificent that it's not really a test, but he does want our love to develop fully. So it's, it's like a probationary period. Let's make sure. Uh, sometimes you notice, especially with young lovers, uh, you know, the boy is very anxious to get beyond the probationary period you know and yeah let's let's show me you love me I want to show you I love you of course we know it's only lust in the material application but the same thing is is you know sometimes we just you know we want the, we want the prize right away Narda got the prize right in the very beginning the Supreme Lord manifested his form to Narda when he was still in that beginning stage of his devotional practice. A very rare, very rare circumstance. So the Lord can appear to our internal or our external senses at his own free will. Bhakti is also like that. She appears by her own free will. The first verse is that. The next verse dispenses with the misconception that bhakti is the result of material piety or good deeds. So we've kind of touched on that earlier this evening. Is, is there's no endeavor we can make 
But a lot of a lot of people and a lot of scriptures emphasize, do they not, that if you're a good religious person, then that's going to lead to a spiritual result for you. And it seems logical, love thy neighbors thyself and give in charity and you know do all this nice piety. And yeah, that means you're you're really uh, really spiritual. But does it lead to bhakti? Does it give bhakti? Does it give pure love for the Supreme Lord? Vishwanath makes the point very firmly in this second verse regarding bhakti's independent nature. Some describe the word yadricha as by good fortune. If this is accepted, then... One may ask whether this good fortune arises from pious activities or not. So, we hear you get bhakti by some good fortune. You're fortunate and bhakti comes your way. Well, you must have been a pious person. If we accept pious activities as the cause of the good fortune, if we say, okay, then bhakti's independence is no longer Bhakti now becomes the slave of piety. Piety is material. Bhakti is spiritual. The author is trying to make the point, well, then that can't be the cause of bhakti, material piety. If we accept pious activities as the cause of such good fortune, then it is dependent on good deeds and loses its self-manifesting nature. If pious activities are not the cause of good fortune, then again the cause remains unknown. Well, then we're still in the dark. Well, what's causing this? We don't know what the cause of the good fortune is because if it's not pious activities, then we still don't know what it is. We're thinking if you're a good person and you do good deeds, then you're going to be, you're going to be fortunate and that good fortune is going to draw bhakti to you. Well, no, that's not the case. So we don't know what the good fortune is. Well, let's go on and try to figure out what is that good fortune. The cause of fortune being unknown, how can we accept that it causes bhakti? By logic, a fact that is itself unproven is unable to prove another fact. So we can't prove that piety creates good fortune, so we're not able to prove where the good fortune comes from. If the Lord's mercy is accepted as the cause of bhakti and not good fortune, which came from piety, one may again ask about the cause of that mercy. If the good fortune is the Lord's mercy, well, let's, let's look into that. He goes on, inquiring more and more about the cause of the Lord's mercy. I mean, Vishwanath is very, very... He really is... Let's get into this, okay... If I inquire more and more about the Lord's mercy in looking at, at, the, at, the, at the manifestation of bhakti, one is able to come to a conclusion and the fact remains unproven. If, however, one says that the cause of mercy of the Lord is the cause of bhakti, then it should be equally bestowed to all. Makes sense. I mean, do we really want a God that, that uh, you know, just willy-nilly says, okay, bhakti for you and hell for you. You stay in material existence, you I'm going to give bhakti to and go back to Godhead and you, well, I don't know, you just stay here for a while. And you, well, I don't know. So, is that the kind of God that, that we conceive of the Supreme? No, it isn't. But, there are those people that could say, well, if he's going to dispense the good fortune of bhakti, at his own free will, indiscriminately, then, then he's not equal. We can't say God is equal to all. Since this is not seen, it would imply the fault of partiality in the Lord. The partiality seen in the Lord in punishing the demons and maintaining his devotees is not a fault, but an ornament. The Lord's affection for his devotee is supreme, ruling over all his other qualities like a universal emperor. 
This will be discussed in detail in the eighth shower of this book. So there is partiality on the part of the Lord, but that partiality is exhibited when someone has already been blessed with bhakti and somebody else is inimical or envious of the Lord or the Lord's devotees. So someone already, one has been blessed with bhakti and because of that blessing, they're treated in one way because they're developing love for the Supreme Lord. And those people that are not developing love for the Supreme Lord, they're treated differently because of their, they're either envious of the Lord or, or just outright, well, they're demoniac. They have no sense of, of, of appreciation for God. So for those people that are already on one of the two paths, then the Lord does so partiality. But he doesn't show partiality. And this is an important point. He doesn't show partiality when it comes to who bhakti is offered to. He treats everybody equally. He stays neutral. He doesn't become involved. He's not the bestower of bhakti. He leaves that to someone else. Interesting points. So now, we have this this understanding as to the fact that well, okay, so bhakti's not created by my piety, I can't do anything materially to acquire it and it's not that God just hands it out indiscriminately. In fact, he, he leaves that fully in the hands of someone else. So I see I've already gone over. Time flies when you're having fun. I hope you guys had fun. Are there any questions? Next week we will get to what is the actual cause. I know I'm repeating and going over this, but I really, this, this is foundational to our practice. And I know many people that have been practicing for many, many years and decades who don't have the foundation down. Well, without a good foundation, it's hard to construct anything there's every likelihood that it could fall down whenever there was a uh, you know a strong breeze so we need to put down the, our roots firmly in an understanding of of what is pure devotional service what is not pure devotional service what is m mixed motivated in some way which uh, which is going to impede our progress it's going to be hard not to make progress in good association, but mixed desires can pull us from that good association, which is the nourishment that, that keeps our practice pure. No questions? Thank you. Hare Krishna.